Welcome to In the Bible with Jason Worf. We're in the middle of a series about the Ten Commandments called God Wrote Love. And today we're looking at commandment number five in a message entitled Greatest Honor. You know, Eastern cultures see things differently than we do. Has anybody been in Japan or in a, um, an Asian country? Yeah? Um, how about in the Middle East? And if you've been in one of these countries, which I haven't, so I'm, I'm just going on mostly my sister's understanding <laughs> and what I've read. Uh, but if you've been in one of these countries, you understand that things are, there's a different order of, of the society and how things work. And it kind of comes from how they see life, how they see relationships and stuff. We kind of perceive life through a Western lens of legal and guilt, right? The, the law says I should do this, and if I don't, these are the consequences. It's very personal, um, independent kind of a mindset, and, and we see our social relationships based on those things, and it's what's fair is kind of the big question. But in an Eastern culture, they don't see that at all. I mean, there's laws, but it's just not the same kind of mindset. So I want to explore this honor-shame idea as we look at the fifth command, and we're looking at the fifth command, honor your mother and your father. And when we, when we look at this command, we have to see it from a different perspective than our Western lens usually allows us to. So I, I want you to get into this mode of thinking about honor and shame. I'll give you a couple examples. My sister, I asked her for some advice because she's living in a Muslim country and she has this opportunity to see this honor-shame idea. And she told me it's not so much about trying to be honorable because people will do plenty of dishonorable things. In, in that culture, it's more about the social shame, avoiding social shame. The, the story she told me made me think about when I was a kid. You know, somebody wants to, like, treat you badly. Um, you, you're supposed to kind of respond and, and fight back. And uh, if you don't, you're, you're what? You're a sissy, right? You're <laughs> well, it kind of reminded me of that. So she told me that they were at a, a grocery store. Actually, it's not a grocery store. It's a market. She, she was at a market, and there, there's a one line coming in and one line going out. For everybody that goes in, they check their temperature. And, and so it's one person at a time. And when it got to my sister, Alsa, um, she, she's standing there, and they check her temperature. She'd been in the sun, and it was a little too hot. So they, they put her to the side, and they'll, they'll do a second check. But while, they're, while she's waiting to cool down a bit in the shade, um, there's a bunch of people that are going through, and she gets to watch all of this. And one guy, um, he's irritated, not sure if it was the temperature check or whatever reason. He says something that would have been considered shameful to the, the store attendant. And so because there's public shame associated with whatever this guy said, the man responded defensively and said something shameful about the, the, the customer. And of course, that wasn't nice, and he didn't want to look bad in front of everybody else. And so, he, in order to avoid shame, he escalated and said something even worse about the store attendant. And my sister says that she's seen several fights break out in, in the quest to avoid public shame. I don't know about you, but it seems more shameful to get into a fight than than to, to, to have this back and forth thing. Maybe we'll understand a little bit more about why that is as we explore this idea a little more. In Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of the, the prodigal son. And I'm going to tell you just the, the very beginning of how this should have gone. Not how Jesus told the story, but how it should have gone. 
The younger son says to his father, Father, give me the share of property. Give me my share of property from my inheritance. And what the father should have said is, What? You want me dead? You, you want your property as though I were dead. Well, if you want me dead, then I declare you dead and out of this family. Get out of here. And it, it tells us something about the honor idea in the Bible. And it's different than the Eastern culture's idea of honor. And it's also different than yours and my understanding of honor. And so today I want to explore with you in this series on the Ten Commandments, what does the Bible mean by honor? Family honor and shame is a way of looking at culture. It's a way of looking at our society and how we fit into that culture. And in a biblical Eastern culture, uh, family was more than just family of a mom, a dad, and their kids. There was grandparents and aunts and uncles, mom and dad, kids, uh, nephews and nieces, um, grandkids. All of those were in the same mix. Typically, they were part of the same family business, uh, some type of a farm or some type of a make, making something or, or, or doing something that, that would um, earn money. But they're all part of the same family business. And because of that, the, the family unit is, is integral to the economy of the entire nation. And so this idea of shame and the, the potential of honor is significant economically, just as much as, as it is uh, emotionally, it's a very significant economic factor. For, for example, a family would trade on their honor. If a family was considered honorable, then the, the older man in the family would sit at the city gates. And in that role, he would be able to negotiate deals and partnerships and you know trade arrangements with uh, other people in the town, with other cities, with uh, foreigners. And, and that, that position was economically favorable for that family. And if that man was an honorable man, hopefully economically favorable for the entire city. If they were a family of honor, they would be able to marry their daughters into other families that were honorable and, and hopefully wealthy as well. And that would give their whole family a, a financial benefit as well. Uh, and a, a tie, a partnership with this other family, the possibility of continued economic prosperity. Dishonor and shame came to a family when a child or a family member publicly did something that was socially unacceptable, and especially when, when it was something that harmed the family. So things that were considered harmful, there's a wide variety of stuff, but it, it could be saying something bad about your, your parents. That was a harmful thing, economically and socially a harmful thing, therefore shameful. In fact, Exodus 21.15, talking about hitting, um, it, it says, if a child strikes his father or mother, they shall be put to death. It was so significant. The very fabric of their culture was tied to this family cohesiveness. And so God says, right after the Ten Commandments, this is uh, Exodus 21, He says, there's some additional social rules that will help you to, to relate um, in a healthy way. And so capital punishment was a possibility for somebody who hits their parent. And, and in verse 17 of chap chapter 21 in Exodus, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. The, another translation, I think the CEV Bible says, whoever dishonors his father or mother there. But the same idea is, is there, that cursing, that public shame that they bring to their family would, would mean that they would be cut off from that community. And, and it's that response. In order to deal with the shame that's brought to this family, you have to take the shameful one out of the family. That, that's kind of what we're seeing in maybe a modern 
Eastern society. Uh, a young man, I know one uh, who this happened to, a young man might become a Christian in, uh, in, in Iran or Iraq or something, and the response of the Muslim community around them could easily be for his siblings, his cousins, his uncles, to come after him and beat him severely. In fact, the one I'm thinking of, he's now a professor at Andrews University, and he was beaten severely by his, his family, but they wanted to kill him, and the Lord worked a miracle to prevent that. But the, the idea is this person has to be gone, or that shame will persist in our family. This, this honor-shame idea is something that pervades the Bible's stories. Every story that you read, you have to ask yourself, am I looking at it through this Western perspective, or is there a different way of considering this story than I normally would? So let's go to Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to look at, at verse 12. Exodus 20 verse 12, and this is the, the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Now, we're going to read it in three different places in the Bible. One's going to be in Exodus, another's in Deuteronomy, and the third is in Ephesians. And each one help us understand and build a little bit more our understanding of how the Bible is interacting with this honor-shame idea. And, and here it is, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, so far we've seen one positive command in the Ten Commandments, uh, and it's the fourth commandment. Remember, all right, this is a do command. Uh, most of them are do not. Have you heard of the idea of a chiasm? A chiasm is it's just a literary tool, and uh, th this is kind of how I see the Ten Commandments. It's a, there's a, a chiasm involved, and it's just a literary structure building towards the main idea and then descending after that. So this one kind of has two main ideas, and this is how I see it. He starts with do not, uh, you know, don't worship other gods, don't make other uh, images and bow down to them, don't take my name in vain. And then he says, do remember the Sabbath. So everything in the first part is building towards this very relational command, do connect with me is kind of what God is saying, do have a relationship with me. And these others are, don't break that relationship, but this one is, do have that relationship with me. And then the, the, the Ten Commandments have another do command connected to them, the do honor, like do honor your mother and your father is the, the next positive command here. And then it kind of descends from there. Do not, do not, do not, do not. And all of these seem to be connected to the first positive command towards our, our mankind. Do honor. And then the, the other things protect the honor idea. Uh, don't steal. Well, if you steal, that's dishonoring the person you're stealing from. Do not commit adultery. If you're committing adultery, you're dishonoring your spouse. Do you see how that, that works? So, everything builds towards the Sabbath, and everything comes out of the honor idea. So, this is the, the Ten Commandments, and these commands, especially this one, is, is unique among the rest. It's a do command, but it shares that role with the Sabbath, but this one has a blessing connected to it, and that's, that's not something we've seen yet, and it's not something that you'll see after. It's the one command that it has a blessing. The first way that we looked at it, the blessing was simply that your life would be long. Honor your father and your mother that your life may be long in the land. But Deuteronomy, this is Moses retelling the Ten Commandments, and he adds a nuance to this that helps us tie this to this understanding of shame and honor in a society. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 16, he says, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long. Well, that's all something we've read before, but then he adds, that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do you see how he just tied honoring your parents to a whole society well-being? That it may go well with y'all is what we'd say in Kentucky. 
y'all, like not, not just you individually, but you all are involved in this well-being. When honor is present, the society succeeds. And when shame exists, the honor, the, the, the society is harmed. Moses adds this idea, but the, the question you and I should really be asking as we look at this honor-shame idea is, what's that got to do with you and me? Because our society is very independent, and if I shame my parents, it doesn't harm them economically, it doesn't harm me economically, it doesn't matter a whit to you either. It's not, it's not so, so uh, societally connected as it was then. So does this command still apply? Is there still value? And are these promises still significant? Well, let's go to the third place that the Bible talks about this command. Ephesians chapter 6 says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first command with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And then he adds another component. And I think this is where he, he makes it relevant for you and me. And he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, some of us say, oh, see, this is where the Bible says we need to be spanking our kids. Um, <laughs> that's not exactly what he's saying. He's saying that, that our interaction with each other in our family is one that's supposed to be honor from the child to the parent and from the parent to the child a, a beautiful dis discipling, right? He's calling parents to raise up their kids to love Jesus. And, and if that's the, the response, the interaction, then is that relevant for you and me today? Can parents still disciple their children and children obey their parents in the Lord? Absolutely. Does that still tie in with this blessing of long life and well-being? Absolutely, it does. Now, interestingly, this idea of honor in the Bible is, it's a big idea. It's not just one little thing about shame and honor and what people think about you. It's not a public perception issue, even though that's kind of how the honor-shame society tends to look at it. It's how others perceive me, and if others perceive me badly, then I've been shamed, and I have to somehow get out of that public appearance of shame. But that's not where the Bible ends up going usually. Uh, the idea of honor in the Bible is connected with esteem and value and great respect. And the Bible commands us to give honor and respect to our parents, to anybody with gray hair. So if you have gray hair, you can smile and say, yeah. <laughs> That's because there's wisdom in years of life. And those of us without gray hair should respect that wisdom defer to that wisdom and give value to that wisdom. The Bible also calls us to respect and honor those that have been given authority over us. So, specifically those that are in the church, the elders and church leaders uh, of various leadership capacities, and, and also our government leaders in our local and our, our federal government, in our case, uh, how our government is established. We should respect and give honor to governing authorities. Um, also, those people that we work for, <laughs> the bosses that we have, uh, we should honor and respect and value them. And the reason for honoring these people, though, is not because they're worthy of honor. No, like there's, thing, there's people that are just dishonorable in their behavior. And, and it's, it's not a, something that I would want to defer my decision-making into their hands. Um, the same is true for parents. Some parents are not godly, and they do harm to their children by the way they interact. And, and so it's not, the, the call to honor is not because the person is honorable. The call to honor is because God is the one who deserves all our honor 
and because he has delegated a responsibility to them. First Chronicles 29.11 says this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. God is the ultimate authority. He is the one who is truly honorable, and it's to him that we give our honor and our esteem and all the value, right? That's, that's God's department. You and I, we, we've got brokenness is what we've got, but God has given responsibility. And in giving that responsibility, He gives us the opportunity of humbly honoring those He's put in those roles. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, He says, And He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the working of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. God gave. And it's for the benefit of the church that he gave responsibility. In Romans, Paul talks about the, the um, idea of honoring our government officials. And it's because it's a good thing to have laws in the land that we honor our government. So Paul would tell us that we should really obey the speed limit. We should honor our government because it's meant for our good. If we didn't obey the speed limit, then there'd be more accidents. More people would die as a result. Our laws are intended to be good. Peter, he says, he, he adds to this, not just that we should honor our parents and honor the elderly and honor those in charge. He says we should honor everybody. It's in 1 Peter 2, verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor, whoever he may be. Romans 13, 2 points out that disobeying and disrespecting those that God has put in this role is disobeying and disrespecting God himself. Romans 13, 2 says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. There's going to be a discipline that happens as a result. A punishment. Paul says to, about church leaders, especially the elders, he says the elders are worthy of double honor. Sometimes the elders don't necessarily think they're worthy of any honor, but, but the reason they're worthy isn't because they're fantastic, though he does say that, that it's when they do their job well, or especially because they do their job well, that they're worthy of honor, but it's because God has called them to that role, and it's an important role of church leadership, spiritual leadership, administration, and they're worthy of double honor because, first of all, we should honor them in respect and all that stuff, esteem, but we should and, and this is this, he's saying this to Timothy. He says, First uh, Timothy five seven he, seventeen. He says that we should pay them too. Husbands and wives are called to honor each other in the Bible, and and this is an interesting idea. We're we're supposed to honor our spouse, to esteem them and value them. And when we get into this, this idea of honoring everybody and, and honoring our spouses and things, we start to step into this idea that the Bible connects honor and love. These are two intrinsically connected things. Not that we're supposed to love the emperor necessarily. There's esteem and, and stuff is connected to that. But, but that in the Christian circle, like Peter says, love the brotherhood. In the Christian circle, love and honor are intrinsically connected. And you can find this Romans 12.10. Love one another with brotherly affection. This is kind of a poem. Love one another with brotherly affection. And then the, the couplet or the, the thing that's tied to it says, outdo one another in showing honor. You see this? Love one another. Honor one another. They're, they're tied together as like they're the same thing. Honor isn't just about giving accolades to somebody who's done well. You know, we do that. The, the, the guy who's been in war, um, we, we give him a purple heart if he's been injured. We say, we value you. And so we give them an accolade, a, a medal. 
Um, somebody who is uh, really good at school, you know, they graduate from their bachelor's degree and they've got, you know, 4.0 and we call them, we say that they're graduating in, 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 with, with honors. And, uh, and then we have like strings that we put on their robes and, and uh, you know, some, maybe we give them a medal and maybe the one that's at the very top gets to speak. They get honor, esteem, value. But um, the uh, idea of the biblical honor is a little different than that. Biblical honor is not based in, in our accomplishments. It's based in our relationship with God and in humility. Turn in your Bible to Proverbs chapter 21, and we'll look at three verses in Proverbs that talk about honor. Proverbs 21, 21. These are kind of illustrations of this connection between honor and our relationship with God. And Proverbs 21, 21 says, whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. Righteousness, of course, is only found in God. He's saying if we pursue God, then we'll, re we'll get honor. Uh, go another page over to chapter 22, verse 4. And he says, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord. That fear of the Lord idea is... Um, in one place, he says it's the beginning of wisdom, but that fear of the Lord is not to be afraid of God, but to be in awe of God and wonder of God's power and whatnot. And it says the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. And, and wasn't in the fifth command, honor your parents connected to long life? The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is honor and life. Proverbs 29, 23, the author says, one's pride, and that's kind of a where worldly honor is, isn't it? One's pride will bring him low. You might put the word shame in there because that low experience is a public scenario and it's where somebody feels ashamed. But he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. These ideas, they're different than Eastern culture would suggest and they're different than our Western culture thinks too. God is introducing a completely new idea of an intrinsic honor, an honor based in, in selfless love and giving to, to each other, an honor based in humility, not in selfish pride, an honor that's, that's not just an outward show scenario. That outward show type of honor is talked about in the Bible. In fact, Joshua says that his fame went throughout all the land. He was honored because of what he was doing, but um, and and there's, there's other scenarios, intelligence and, and uh, wealth and fame, all are considered as something that, that gets people honor. But like Ecclesiastes and James say, our life and that honor that we get from the world is just like a vapor. It's like the morning mist that burns away in the sun or a smoke that blows away in the wind, hopefully soon. But that's kind of what he's saying our life is like. Um, Ecclesiastes repeats it over and over and over and over again, that our lives are meaningless. And that, that doesn't actually mean meaningless. The word means smoke. Our, our lives are smoke. That, that, that's here for a moment and gone quickly. And we can't rely on an outward public honor. That's not where honor really is. Honor is something that's, that's deeper than that superficial or transitory type of honor that, that the world pursues. In fact, Jesus, if, if you were to read the story in Matthew 23, we're not going to go there, but if you were to read the story in Matthew 23, Jesus faces the Pharisees who are very interested in honor. I mean, these are the people that are watching to see who tips their hat at them. They're watching to see who bows just a little bit lower when they walk by. They want public honor. And Jesus, he says that they're hypocrites. 
And he even calls them venomous snakes, vipers. This is not a good idea in Jesus' mind. Public honor is worthless to him. As you can see, the Bible connects honor with the one alone who's worthy of honor. Jesus is above everybody else worthy of honor. God is above everybody else worthy of honor. And every other form of honor is really just a response to God giving somebody a task of responsibility in our lives or a response to recognizing God's creatorship. The reason we're called to honor each other is because God has given each one of us intrinsic value because he created us. Not because of our worth, but because he is our creator. And so everything starts with him. And, and it's closely tied with this other-centered love. What does 1 John 4 say? This is an important verse, an important idea to honor. It says, anyone who does not honor, anyone who does not love, doesn't even know God. Because if you really knew God, you would know that God is love. And, and so honor is given not because it's deserved, but because the creator who deserves it has created each of us and delegated responsibilities to different ones of us. We honor each other because of God. So let's go back to the story of the prodigal son. I told you how it should have gone. Now let me tell you how Jesus described it. But, but if you permit me a little bit of uh, creative license, I'm going to tell you the story from, as good as I can, a, a honor-shame society perspective. In our Western mindset, this story, it's imagined in our context. How many of you thought that the, the, the son came to the father in a fairly private setting? Maybe you didn't even think about the setting. Yeah, you typically think this is happening in the bedroom, in the living room, maybe out back under the terebinth tree. By the way, terebinth tree is an oak tree. Whatever the context was, you're thinking of it more than likely in a fairly private context. But that's not likely to be the case. This man lives in a much bigger family than just him and his two sons. More than likely, there were several family members involved. And in fact, we'll see in just a minute that this happened in front of, at least part of the story, happened in front of the city in, in the, at the city gates. This is a very public thing. And remember, public shame is huge in a, in a, a family honor society. In Luke 15, 12, the son says to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And the father quietly gathers the documents from the house, not, not to disown his son, which is what the society would have expected and what everybody would have been waiting for him to do. But he comes back to, to his son with the the legal documents for one-third of the property that his family owns. He'd get one-third because he's the younger son. The older son would get a double portion, so two-thirds. And, uh, and this legal exchange would have happened in the presence of the city elders at the city gates, and, and there would have been a shoe involved. You might have heard about that in the, in the Bible. Well, we'll come back to that in a minute. Now, in doing this, the father sees the shame that he, his son is bringing on him, and everybody is ready to, to like, stone the kid. That's, this is a, a, a negative environment for this young man. And instead of allowing the, the city to, to cut off his son, the man absorbs his son's shame. He takes it on himself. He owns the shame of his son as his, his family's shame, accepting all of the financial consequences that would come, not just from losing the third of his, of his farm, but from also losing the, the honor and re reputation in that society. The younger son went on to disgrace his family even more by selling that property and turning it into money because he was in trouble. He needed to get out of there. 
And you better believe there's nobody in that town that was going to buy that property and contribute to more shame on that family because that would have been shameful for them. And so the, the, the probability is that he sold this to a foreigner, maybe a Gentile, somebody from another town at least, but probably to somebody from another country. And if that's the case, then he, he cut off that, that property from ever being part of his family's inheritance ever again. This was a, a deep, deep shame that he caused his family. And he ran. As soon as he got that money, he left. It was bad news for him in that town. So he went to a city, someplace that he could live a profligate life and squander his money that he had earned until finally he finds himself in a pigsty covered in pig slop and, and manure and hungry, hungry, hungry. And finally, in his great humility, think about what we talked about with honor in the Bible. In this man's newfound humility, he thinks, maybe I can go back. Maybe I can go back to my father and, and work, and my father can pay me what he'd pay uh, wages for any servant. Maybe in 20 or 30 years, I could buy back some property to bring into my family and, and, and give some honor again. And so he does. And, and the next part of the story introduces uh, another component of this shame idea. And this really should be vindication of the shame that was happening on, on the, the family. He should have been judged. And, and so he comes in, and we typically think of him coming over the hill in a farm country where, where there's absolutely nobody for miles. And then the, the, the dad is sitting there on the back porch in his rocking chair waiting for the man, uh, waiting for the son to come. And as soon as he sees him a, a, far, a long way off, he gets up and runs to him and embraces him. And, you know, that's, it's a private situation that we typically, typically consider. But they probably didn't live in an environment where there is nobody around. People saw this young man coming for a while. He came through the city gate in order to get to his, his dad, and his dad, seeing a crowd gathering and seeing his son a, a long ways off, throws off all regard for his personal dignity, which a man of his stature should not have been running to somebody else. Uh, his son should have come to him, but he throws off all regard for his personal dignity, runs to his son, embraces his pigsty-smelling self, kisses him, and before anybody can talk about this cutting-off ceremony that would remove him and, and well, provide the opportunity for, for the death penalty, he says to his servants, go get the robe, cover this filth with my new robe. And then he, he says, bring that signet ring, the signet ring that, that's, that uh, identifies authority in the family. And then he says, give him some new shoes. And that's a real significant thing that he just said. He has, by that statement, adopted his son back. His son was dead. He was dead to the family, dead to the city, but he's adopted him back and said, this is my son. And he, he again absorbs that son's shame and brings that son back into full standing with the family. Now, the community has no ability now to prosecute this young man because the, uh, the father has nullified that shame that has happened. Hmm. So he goes on to do something even more significant, and he throws a community party. He, he kills the fatted calf, and, and the whole, the whole uh, village is there. Well, the older son comes back, and the older brother hears this party going on, asks the servant what's going on. The servant timidly, for fear of what's about to happen, says what, what the, the circumstances are, and this older brother becomes furious. Again, 
we think in a Western culture that there is a private conversation that happens between this, this uh, elder son and the father. But they're, they're throwing a party. The whole village is there. There's no way there's privacy. This young man likely comes up to the doors, throws them open, and is screaming at his father. He, his father looks at this, this older son, an older son who refuses to come into the party. Now, keep in mind, in an Eastern culture, you do not refuse food. In fact, not only do you not refuse a party, an invitation to a party, but you bring something. Because this honor-shame idea, there's a tit-for-tat in, involved in this. Uh, my sister says that if somebody brings you cookies, then they, they expect that you'll give them something in return. And if you bring somebody um, uh, something nice then you better believe that they're going to be giving you something just as nice or nicer back because they don't want to be put into a position of public shame where they have not been thoughtful and considerate of their, their host. And so if you invite them to a party, they're going to bring something with them to kind of pay for that thing so that you're kind of on equal standing in this honor-shame world. But if you reject an invitation to a party, you have rejected that person. It is a deep dishonor to reject that invitation. And so this young man, invited to the party because he's part of the family, refuses to enter. And that shame that's publicly demonstrated is responded to with the same grace. The father should have said, fine, you don't want to be part of the party. You're not invited anyway. You're no longer my son. But what he did instead is he stepped forward and he approached that older son and he pleaded with him. The older son said, but you've never given me even a lamb to throw a party with my friends, but you've, you've killed the steer for this profligate guy. He went off and, and he, he wasted your money on prostitutes. Now, this, this idea, we have to stop for just a moment and think about it. He sells the land to a foreigner, and then he goes and sleeps around with the foreigner. That, that was really, really bad. Shameful thing to do for that family. And for that son, the older son, to accuse the young man of this, and in so doing, accuse the father uh, in, in having brought him back into the family, this was a, another deep, shameful thing that he said in this public context. And, and yet, the father doesn't respond with the shameful or the, the, the response to shame that would be expected. Honestly, we don't know what the father responds with. There is no ending to this story. We don't know what happens with the party. At, at some point, probably when those doors were thrown open, the party gets quiet and everybody stops. And we don't know what happens after that. We don't know how, what happens to the family or to this, uh, the estate of that family. What we do know is the father is a stand-in for God. Now think about this idea of honor and shame and how God responds to it. Because in an Eastern culture, honor was something to be prized and something to be defended, and yet God the Father, who is ultimately dishonored by both His sons, the angels in heaven with Lucifer and those who rebelled, and His children on earth, all defied him, disrespected him, dishonored him, shamed him. In fact, he, he says that we have profaned his name. You've dishonored me among the nations. God responds to this double dishonor by absorbing that honor on himself. He takes it and he, he redeems it. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Paul describes in, in uh, 2 Timothy, he gives a list and he talks about all these bad things, including disobedient to parents. How many of us have dishonored God by being disobedient to our parents? Come on, raise your hand. Don't be shy. 
right? We, we all fall into this, this category. And then after another list in 1 Corinthians, a similar list of evildoers that will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is his statement. Horrible stuff. Parent, dis- disobedient to parents, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. That's what God says about um, dishonoring your family. But then Paul says, to the, the, says this promise to them, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do you, do you see the beauty here? We have caused shame to God, every one of us, by dishonoring each other and by doing so many other different sins, but God has washed us, sanctified us, redeemed us, and, and then if you look at Ezekiel, look at Ezekiel chapter 36, and this is such a beautiful story. He says to Israel, his people, the people that should be the, the ones that represent him to the world, he says, you have profaned my name among the nations to which you came. And then he, he makes this promise, I'm going to vindicate my name. I am going to bring honor back to my name. But he doesn't say that it's by cutting you off. Instead, he says, it's through you that I'm going to bring honor to my name. And then he makes this promise in in verses 24 to 27. I'll take you from the nations. Does that sound a little bit like the prodigal son? A son that went to a foreign country and then came back to the father. The father says to Israel, I will take you from your foreign nation that you came from, and I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. I'm going to wash you, and you will be clean from all your uncleannesses, from all the dishonorable things that you've done, and from the idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. That heart that dishonored me and shamed me, I will remove and give you a tender heart, a heart for love, a heart that will honor me and others. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And and then he restores all the honor to the people. The, The people who have shamed him, the people who should be put away, he says, I, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. They sold their inheritance, they followed after idols, and God brought them back and restored it. I don't know if you ever noticed this before, but the fifth commandment, the commandment about honoring our parents, is one of the most beautiful salvation commandments that exist. This is where salvation is is not because we're all perfectly obedient and honoring of each other and of our parents especially, but because of redemption and because the parent of all parents has brought that shame that we brought on him and on each other, and he's taken it on himself. And Jesus bore our shame on the cross. Paul even points to it and says, notice what the Bible says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus bore our shame, our curse for us. He took our sin on himself. Now, parents, I, I'd like to suggest that, that your children should honor you and that that should include obedience and that should include kind words and that should include thoughtfulness and valuing you and um, compassion, and right? I'd, I'd like to suggest that that's the conclusion of this sermon, but it's not really the conclusion of this sermon. The conclusion of this sermon is a grace-filled, other-centered love. And that should come from the heart of a child to their parents. A love because God has given you, kids, one of the greatest gifts in your parents. They have the responsibility given by God to, to disciple you and bring you up to be a lover of Christ. And because God has given that, that responsibility, and because they love you, you should pour your life out for them. And if you have living parents still, if, even if you're not under their roof, 
then that, that respect and honor and, and esteem is something that you should continue to give to them because God has given them that role of bringing you into the world and raising you up as a disciple of Jesus. Even if they're not Christians, you can give them that honor. But the opposite is true too. Ephesians 6 has a call in the honor context to parents, a call to disciple. And so if you've got gray hair, if you've got kids or grandkids, then God has put you in a role of responsibility, the most important role in the world, a responsibility to be a disciple maker of Jesus. You could go into all the world, but it begins in your home to make disciples. And, and so instead of going into your kid and saying, son, God tells you to honor me, so now obey what I say. Instead of seeking honor, an honor that is fleeting at best, the Bible encourages us to make disciples, to be a, a humble, self-sacrificing, loving parent that draws our children in love. And so the call is not to obey your parents or else, the call is to be a self-sacrificing, grace-filled lover of your family and of the brethren in your church and of all mankind. God asks us to honor each other. Can you imagine a society, just, just for a moment, can you imagine a society where everybody gave honor to each other? We probably won't see it until heaven, but I pray that this little community here would be a place where we model that and we give honor and deference and grace and where we absorb each other's shame. Wait, doesn't the Bible say something like that? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You've been listening to In the Bible, recorded at the Bonners Ferry Seventh-day Adventist Church. You're welcome to come visit us in person. We're located on Highway 95, six miles north of Bonners Ferry. You can also find us online at bonnersferryadventist.org. If you'd like to listen to past episodes of In the Bible, you can find our podcast on Apple and Amazon Podcasts.